So let's turn in our Bibles this morning. I'm going to continue our journey. Uh, if, you're, if you're visiting today or you're new, we've been doing a series of sermons from the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. The good news is hopefully uh, I will show you some slides here so you'll kind of follow along. But if you have a there is a Bible in front. I know that for a fact in the pew. One of the, probably the repeated themes in scripture, and probably one that's been, I think, in the last number of years, somewhat overlooked, is the theme of the eminent judgment that's about to occur because of human rebellion in our world. And I want you to think back at the very beginning of the Bible. You know, we have the story of how God created the world, and then eventually, over time, it became so corrupt that God said he, actually, God, you know, it says he, felt bad that he had created humanity and given them that freedom of choice because they were, the Bible says, every imagination possible was bent towards sin. And the world got so corrupted and perverse that God allowed a great flood to come upon the earth, but he spared. One man found grace in his eyes. His name was Noah, it was a great flood. And then we think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, another moment of teaching us the lesson that God will judge humanity for their sins, or the destruction of the northern kingdom under the Assyrian regime, or how about the destruction of Jerusalem, not once, but two times, once by the Babylonians, that's what we're going to look at today, and then the second time by the Romans. We now are living in an amazing hour, but how many recognize that we have a hope that's set before us? Jesus Christ is going to come back to our planet, and sometimes we forget that. The Bible calls that the blessed hope. For the Christian, it's an hour of redemption. As a matter of fact, I would argue today that if you're discouraged about the way your life is going, and maybe you're frustrated about what you see in our society today, maybe it brings despair and discouragement in your heart. The Bible says, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. You and I should begin to get excited. Hey, if, if this is the way it's moving, we're moving towards the hour when Jesus will come back to this planet, but it's also known as the day of the Lord. And the problem with that statement is the day of the Lord is also a moment of divine judgment on our planet. And you can't read the last book of the Bible and not see that God will judge humanity for their rebellion and sin. Probably one of the dangers of life is ignoring or recasting the past with the desire to create a different narrative. How many know we're living in that hour? People do not want to you know, learn from the past. We don't want to look at the past and take a hard look at it and say these were the good things in it and these were the not so good things in it because humanity will always make mistakes. And we can learn both from what's good and from what's wrong with the past. Because if you create a different narrative and you change the understanding of what happened in the past, what's gonna, what's gonna occur is that we will not make good decisions in the present. And it creates an even different future for people. The problem is what happened in the past is a tale that must be heard and understood in its context. It must be learned from, otherwise we'll continue to repeat its mistakes and suffer once again the consequence of unwise choices and decisions. And as we're going through the book of Jeremiah, we're hearing God's indictment against his own people. Listen, you know, 
Judgment always begins in the house of God. Judgment always starts with the people of God. And if you and I can barely take it, what do you think is gonna happen to the rest of the people who have no concept, no concern about it whatsoever? So God wants to do a special work today. He wants to awaken us. I love the songs we sang this morning. You know, your love awakens, your love awakens. You know, I, I, I really feel the church needs to be awakened today. There's a sense that we're, we've grown into a state of lethargy and maybe a little apathy. And I'm not just speaking uh, of other people. I'm speaking even of myself as a pastor. I was praying this morning with our prayer partners. I was saying, listen, I, I feel like I need a spiritual awakening in my life. There's, there needs to be a greater sense of urgency in the hour in which we're living. We're almost being you know, kind of numbed by all of the challenges around us. So here in Jeremiah chapter 19, that's where we're at, beginning in verse one, we're gonna go all the way to verse six of chapter 20. This is a shorter chapter. We're gonna take a look at this challenging message and the response to that message, both by the establishment in the community of Judah, both the religious leaders and the political leaders, because Jeremiah was speaking to the entirety of God's people. And we're gonna see that both these groups, both the leadership on the religious side and the political side was leading the nation astray from God and leading them straight into apostasy. And God was gonna address this. God will always address things. And we're gonna discover here three movements that defines Judah's state of apostasy from God and how does this biblical truth impact the way we live or the way we ought to live? So it's not just a historical story, but it has application for us right now. We need to learn from this moment of time because folks, we're living in a parallel moment. And if we don't understand what's going on there and we don't awaken to what's happening and we don't respond in the right way, we're gonna experience the devastation that Jeremiah was warning against. So the first thing I noticed, the first movement is, is really this, prophetic verdict. It's, it's the word of the Lord. It's what God is saying is about to happen to the people. God knows our future. He knew that Judah had now gotten to the point where they were beyond being wooed by his love and grace. How many know the church in the last probably 30, 40 years has really emphasized the love and the grace of God? You know, that's a good thing. I think that's beautiful. We need to emphasize that. But one of my deepest concerns is that what's happening is that we're forgetting other aspects of the nature of God. And, and eventually what happens is if we, don't, if we only emphasize part of God's attributes in nature, we develop a distorted view of who God is. And what happens is we become diminished as human beings because we begin to neglect aspects of what's needed in this life as a follower of Christ. So they had continued to reject his overtures and his calls for repentance and a return to his ways. They were now deeply entrenched in their state of denial, deception, idolatry, and a destructive lifestyle. And by the way, we could just say ditto, because that's where we're headed as a culture. We can see that today. We're, we're living in a state of denial. We're, we're living in a state of deception. Idolatry abounds, and we can see the destructive lifestyle. I, I preached a sermon here a number of weeks ago when the sacred becomes perverse, and we're living in that hour. You know, when what's, what was once considered right now is considered wrong. What once was considered wrong is now considered right. We're confused like never before. And the tragedy, this isn't just in society, but I sense it in many people's lives as believers. We're getting confused and we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to the word of God. We need to understand what God has to say. What is being seen 
is transpiring at a national level in the story, but it was also being lived out in their individual lives as Judeans. And I could say that's happening in our world as well. We see the destructive pattern of sin keeping people from God. And we see that many believers today are beginning to embrace the values of this current society. You know, scripture teaches, come out from among them. Now that doesn't mean we go hibernate in some isolated part of the world so we don't get contaminated by society. That's not what he's about. Jesus didn't say, you know, come out. He, he, he didn't mean to leave the world. He means to not embrace the values of this society. That's what he's talking about. That was what Paul was talking about. Don't be conformed to the, to the, uh, the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a battle going on for the human mind. We need to understand that. And for the value systems, we need to get that in our heads. Now, here we find God saying to Jeremiah, Last week we looked at the potter's house. Remember he sent us over there and he talked about God trying to fashion the nation like a piece of pottery and then when it didn't work out he started all over again and I said as long as we're in the hands, as long as we're that wet clay in the hands of God, God can shape our lives. But now he says to Jeremiah in chapter 19 verse one, this is what the Lord says, go and buy a clay jar from the potter. Now how many know this is now a finished product? And what do they do with pottery is they put it in an oven and they bake it, right? And, and they harden it. And now you, there's no longer any room to fashion this pot. He says, take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go to the valley of Ben-Hinnon near the entrance of the potsherd gate and there proclaim the words I tell you. So this isn't Jeremiah's message, folks. This is God's message spoken through the prophet. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I'm gonna bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. In other words, this is gonna be shocking stuff. They have forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods. They've burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. In other words, these guys started you know, embracing all kinds of idolatrous practices from the nations surrounding them. And they have filled the place with the blood of the innocent. What's he talking about there? Well, we're gonna see it here. Actually, they were offering up their children. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention or did it enter into my mind. In other words, God is not advocating child sacrifice, but many of these gods of these ancient peoples had human sacrifices. And this is what he's speaking against right here. In this, in this very place, in this valley that they're moving towards, this valley, Ben-Hinnon, it was where they were practicing child sacrifice. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call this place Tophet or the valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter. Once again, Jeremiah is obedient to God's mission. He secures that finished piece of pottery. He brings some of the leaders of Judah to the valley of Ben-Hinnon, and it's amazing that the people would even go with them. Think about this. I think we have to remember a couple of things. Number one, Jeremiah was actually from the priestly caste, so he probably was connected somehow, maybe related to some of these people, number one, and I think that 
Jeremiah was a very dynamic personality and he was out of step with everybody else and he was catching people's attention. And later on in the book, you're gonna find out that there were people listening to him. So he was, he was getting people following him. So they, they were trying to figure out, what is he up to? Uh, Tremper Longman says that he could convince these important individuals in Judean society to accompany him indicates that Jeremiah was something of a force to be reckoned with and could not easily be ignored. I think that, you know, what's this guy up to? What's he have to say? He was intriguing. How many know sometimes when you're, when you're, when you're walking with God, you're gonna capture people's attention. People are gonna go, something's going on with you. This is, there's something dynamic happening in Jeremiah's life. Now, he was under a little pressure. We're gonna see that in a little bit. So, where was this place, the Valley of Ben-Hinnon? Now, if you look at this map of Jerusalem, you're gonna see that it's elevated and there's three valleys around the city, okay? And so, as Steve Barabbas says, the location of the valley has been much disputed. You know, which side of the city is it around? All three of the valleys around Jerusalem have been identified with it. The Kidron to the east, the Chypropenian in the center, and the Wadi el-Babi on the west, which most of the scholars believe it was on the west, but whatever. We know that it was in one of those valleys, and they were offering their children. To the, in the past, they were offering it to the god Molech, but now they were offering it to the Baal. They had changed who they were offering their children up. Uh, king Josiah, who had just recently been a king, he was a reformer. He, ab- he abolished this. He legislated it. He went against it. As a matter of fact, we read in 2 Kings chapter 23 that he actually desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. Isn't that interesting? So you have this godly king, the last godly king of Judah, and he dies at 39 years old. He dies prematurely in battle. And then we get the rest of the story. After him, all you have is ungodly kings, and it's just a mess. You know, you go from one king to the next. Babylon is a ruling, reigning, imperialistic government that's coming on the scene. And all of the reforms that Josiah had made were quickly forgotten. This tells me a little something about human nature. You can legislate all you want to, but you know what? External change doesn't change the heart. And the moment he's gone, they go back to what they were doing in the, in the, in the past. It says here, he removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burnt the chariots dedicated to the sun. So he was a, he was a reformer, but his reforms didn't last that long. F.B. Huey said it later became a place this valley of Ben-Hinnon. This has got a tremendous history. It became a place for burning garbage, okay? This was now the new dump, the town dump, okay? Because of the repugnant association with the smoldering fires of garbage being burned, Gehenna, literally the Valley of Hinnon, became Gehenna. By the way, do you know Gehenna in the New Testament is the word we use that's translated for hell? So, What's going on here is simply that this is a place of judgment. That's what we have to understand. So when we're reading the, the New Testament now, Jesus talks about the fires of hell. He's, he's literally alluding, and you probably heard people talk about it. He's lo- alluding to this valley of Ben-Hinnon, which is really Gehenna. And that's you know, a place of judgment. And in the book of Revelation, of course, we see Satan cast into hell. 
and we find out later that all of his demonic emissaries are cast into hell. This is a place of judgment. John Thomas Thompson says a change of name signifies a change of function. So what's going on here in the story uh, is that the Valley of Ben-Hinnon, which had been a place where people were idol worshiping, God says, I'm gonna make this valley the place of slaughter. This is where a place of judgment will happen. I'm gonna allow your nation to be destroyed. I'm gonna allow the inhabitants of the city to be judged. And their bodies and corpse, corpse, corpse are gonna lie, strewed in this valley. This is a pretty intense message that Jeremiah is giving. Trevor Longman says, since Jeremiah is speaking this judgment speech, at least in part to the kings of Judah, it suggests that Jehoiakim rebuilt the place and started using it again. This is a, a, a descendant of Jos- Josiah, one of his children. He, he went ahead and did it. Jer- Jeremiah announces a name change. In the future, it's gonna be called the Valley of Slaughter. The slaughter will be that of the Judeans who practice such horrific rites. So in other words, God allows evil, sinful decisions, and evil to go for a time. And for us, it seems like a a long time. It could be years, it could be decades, it could be centuries. But there is a day coming when God will address all evil. So that's part of the nature of God. God is not only loving and merciful, and he's not here to condemn us. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. But what also we need to understand on the other side of the nature of God is God is a God of justice, of God of holiness and righteousness. And if people are violating God's moral mandates, eventually they will suffer judgment. And we need to understand that. Jeremiah 19.7, he goes on to say here, Uh, in this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I'm gonna gonna ruin them. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who wanna kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. So what we need to understand in the story is that their current idolatrous practices were leading the nation away from God. And how many know that that's always been the nature of sin? It always leads us away from God. It champions death in order to sustain a lifestyle that's abhorrent to God. Are we not living in a time today where death is being championed? This is a culture of death. We even legislate death now. Don't you think that's unusual and fascinating? Uh, Sin blinds us to the real value of life and that which is most sacred and valuable as a culture. It creates an inverted value system and vilifies what's sacred and esteems what is considered an abomination to God. So what is our culture doing? It's elevating and and telling us that what God hates, our culture embraces and values. And meanwhile, God says it's abhorrent and it's disgusting and it's destructive and it's polluted, it's a moral pollution, it's perverse, and it's gonna destroy us as a culture. And that's what's happening. We're watching it emerge before our eyes. He goes on to say here, I will devastate the city and I will make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass will be appalled and will scoff because of the wounds. I will make them, this is scary, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. Okay, you wanna sacrifice your children? I'm gonna allow an invading army to come, surround the city, you're gonna be in a time of famine, it'll be so bad you'll be eating your own children. 
and you'll eat one another's flesh because the enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. By the way, this literally happened in this siege. Oh, by the way, it happened again later under the Roman siege uh, on the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is humanity at its most desperate state. And you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, I don't think I could ever eat somebody else. If everyone's starving, there's no food, people get desperate, they do crazy things. That's what he's talking about. That's kind of the depravity we get to. That's the level of dehumanization people can get to. Walter Brueggemann relates the nature of this graphic description that ought to jar them to what they can anticipate in the future. He says it this way, the simple announcement of death, however, is not rhetorically adequate. Notice how descriptive he's making this judgment. He got to just, I'll just bring you to death. I'll just destroy you. He doesn't do it that way. He offers a picture of bodies piled up as bird for foods. The bodies will be uncared for, unprotected, and dishonored. The city envisioned as a pile of ruins will be a place of mocking. The famine will be so great that people will desperately act as cannibals against their neighbors and their own children. It's a very graphic picture. How many sense it's disgusting, it's graphic, it's shocking, it's abhorrent. It's designed to do that. It's designed to make us aware that this is what happens when we let sin go unfettered in our lives and we just perpetuate sin. Eventually there comes a reckoning moment that's so devastating and horrific we don't even want to think about it. That's what he's describing. If you think about it, Jeremiah is simply restating the results of a broken Mosaic covenant. Because Jeremiah was very familiar with the book of Deuteronomy and the covenant that the people had made with God. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 28, 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. If you, if you disobey God, this is the curse that will come upon you. You will come at them for one, uh, uh, you, you will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. In other words, you're united in attacking, but you're going to be fleeing in defeat in many directions. And you will become a thing of horror to all kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals and there will be no one to frighten them away. In other words, there'll be no sacred burial. How tragic. Jeremiah actually lived beyond this moment. If you keep reading the book, what happens is the city eventually gets destroyed. Everybody flees. The Babylonians take over. And then what happens is Jeremiah you know, kind of walks into the town and begins to see the city in its broken places. Matter of fact, there's another book that's really interesting. It's a book called Lamentations. It follows the book of Jeremiah in your Bible. Lamentations is authored by Jeremiah. It's a very poetic book, and he's talking about the devastation. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now live on ash heaps. He's describing the siege here. He says, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand to help her. In other words, as bad as Sodom's destruction was, at least it happened quickly. He says, this happened over a period of time. How many know suffering is a terrible thing over a period of time? He goes, those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. In a sense, one's quick, the other's slow. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. And with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who become their food when my people were destroyed. It's a very graphic description of what happens when sin is allowed to run free in our lives. Let me move on. You know, that's the downside. Aren't you glad we're gonna get past that? But 
I think we need to see it. That's the prophetic verdict. And here comes the shattering results. God was about to overrule all the plans that the people had made in order to resist Babylon. They'd created alliances with Egypt. They'd done this thing. They'd worship all these gods. They, 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 instead of repenting and turning to God, they went the opposite. They, they went further into their idolatry. So what's gonna happen? Well, Warren Worsby says to demonstrate this, Jeremiah comes along and he breaks the jar. We're gonna see that in a moment. And this is what he says. I will smash this nation and the city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. The nation was beyond discipline, beyond prayer. We've seen that in these earlier chapters and now beyond repair. They had so hardened themselves against the Lord that all hope was gone. Can nations and individuals sin so greatly that even God cannot restore them? Isn't that an interesting question? Folks, I actually had this dialogue with a non-believer the other day. They said to me, God's so loving, he'll never allow people to get to that point where they will be destroyed. I said, no. I said, God is extremely loving and is waiting for people to repent, but people can so harden their hearts that they refuse to turn to God and they go on their own merry way. And, and because of that, they're gonna destroy themselves. You know, I define hell in a certain way. Hell is the absence of God. And if people keep choosing to be away from God, they're gonna get what they want. God's gonna give them over to their desire. They're gonna have a life absent from God for all of eternity. That's the tragedy. Yes, they can. As long as the clay is pliable in the hands of a potter, he can make it again if it's marred. But when the clay becomes hard, it's too late to reform it. Judgment is the only response to willful apostasy. Are we moving toward that very place in our society today? Are we as God's people indifferent to what God is calling us to? The Christian life is actually a life of separation. We are to come out from among them, not to embrace the values of a corrupt society. We need to take a hard look at what the scriptures say and we have to say, this is what I believe and everything else I'm saying, I'm sorry, that's just not healthy and I'm not gonna embrace that. God is calling us to be a holy people. Do you recognize that only the pure in hearts will see God? Only the pure in heart will see God. We read that on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that. Think about what he's saying there. He said, Peter says, be holy as I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be separated for God's purposes. That you and I are not living a life strictly for ourselves. We're living a life to honor God. Now, Jeremiah is acting prophetically in order to, to demonstrate what's about to happen. Verse 10 then break the jar while those who go with you are watching. Now, how many know you take a, a clay jar and you throw it down? What's gonna happen? It's gonna shatter in all kinds of pieces. That's exactly what happened. It says, and then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and the city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. In other words, the bodies will be everywhere. Obviously, these, uh, this, this idea of dashing to pieces, uh, pieces of pottery is actually very poetic. Matter of fact, I, I remember reading this elsewhere. Immediately, my mind went to Psalm 2. Think about what it says there. This is what uh, the Lord will do to the place and to those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make the city like Topheth. Um, 
I'll keep reading here, one more verse. The houses of, in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place. Topheth and all the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to all the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. So let's take a look at what uh, the psalmist says about this, this dashing of pottery. What were they doing here, by the way? Just get, before I get there, what were they doing here? They were actually practicing what? Astrology. You know, you, you, how many of you know astrology is pretty popular today? And what, what, what do people believe when they're reading astrology? I, 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 I've talked to people. They go, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're just chuckling. Yeah, I don't really buy this stuff. But what, what, the, what the idea behind astrology is that your, your life is determined by the heavenly bodies. That's what the signs of the zodiac are all about. And, you know, the Jewish people actually practiced astrology, which was forbidden because nobody knows the future but God alone. The heavenly bodies are not defining and determining and destining your lives. God is the one who has your future in store for you. And God's plans for us, by the way, are good. But unfortunately, you and I can undo those good plans if we turn our back on God and go our own way. Then then we're left to our own devices. But listen to what the psalm said. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It's a very messianic psalm here. It says, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Isn't that interesting? Same, same image. He's giving us the same portrait right here. What's he talking about? This is talking about Christ who's gonna come back and judge. Do you realize that Jesus, the Savior, when he comes back to the earth, When people look at him, and I wrote this in my little book on Revelation, I I shared this picture. When believers come to Christ, they'll see the Savior. When non-believers come to Christ, they'll see the judge. That's what you're gonna see. You're seeing God through a certain lens, and it's important that we have the right lens. It says, verse 10, therefore you kings be wise, be warned you rulers of the earth. So what is he saying? Wisdom is taking the warning that God will judge the world for our actions. We need to understand that. Obviously, these rulers were totally indifferent to the warnings that God was bringing through his messenger, Jeremiah. We see the people were engaged in personal religion in their households. Upon their flat roofs, they were worshiping the starry hosts. Another rejection of trusting in God alone for their lives. Then we see the destiny of our personal lives. It says in verse 14, then Jeremiah returned from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and he stood in the court of the Lord's temple and he said to all the people. So now he's moving locations from the, the valley you know, that they've been sacrificing their children at. He's moved from that place and smashed down that jar and said this is what's gonna happen. Then he goes to the temple area. Of course, this is where all the religious people are gathered, right? And he says to all the people there, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm gonna bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. Now that word listen doesn't mean you're sitting there listening and hearing something. To listen means you listen with the idea that you are gonna apply what you're hearing. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. 
You've read that in scripture. What's it saying there? That you and I hear the message of God and we take it to heart and we put it into practice in our lives. We're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. And people who are living the Christian life are doing what the word says, not just hearing messages and then forgetting what they're hearing. But let me move on to the third point. We have to apply the scriptures. That's what we're talking about. That's what it means to be stiff-necked, not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Let me move to the last point here. It's the hardened attitude and aggression against the truth that's so interesting in the text. Jeremiah is speaking out against Judah. His message applies to all of God's people throughout history. It's scripture. It's inspired. You and I can read it, and we go, okay, what am I to learn from this? What is God trying to say to me? Whenever we stand and speak the truth as revealed in God's word, well, one thing we can learn is we're gonna experience a measure of opposition. We have to expect that. We're gonna see that in a moment. As a matter of fact, what shocks most of us when we're speaking God's word is the people who oppose us. See, we're all expecting it to come from people who don't know any better. I don't, that's not where the major opposition comes from. This is gonna shock you right now. The, the major opposition for you when you stand for what God is saying is gonna come from other people who say they're believers. That's the shocking thing. That's what you need to understand. See, I, I've come to a deep conclusion in my life. Christianity is an internal faith. You have to experience it at its internal level. God wants to change us from the inside out. The problem is often people think they're Christian, but it's an external experience. They're going through the motions. They understand it intellectually. Maybe they grew up and it's very formal, but it hasn't changed their innermost being. They're not regenerated. Their hearts have not been changed. And so externally, they look like they're doing okay. But look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees, the religious people of his day. He says, you guys look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And you know, unfortunately, there are people sitting in the church sometimes who look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. There's nothing happening. As a matter of fact, Tuesday night when I was talking to our prayer group, there was like 25 of us praying, I shared this interesting idea. I said, it's fascinating to me that the Apostle Paul, when he was teaching on prayer, he didn't pray what we normally pray, all external prayers. See, we pray for people to be healed. We pray for money to be given so we can provide for our families. We pray for, you know, uh, all kinds of external things. But that's not what the Apostle Paul prayed for. I'm not saying the other things are wrong, but I'm saying it's interesting when I'm reading his prayers how internal they really were. He prayed that we would be strengthened by the Spirit in our innermost being. He prayed that we might be filled with the fullness of God. These are all spiritual things. The kingdom of God is not external. It's not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we have all this religiosity in the world, sometimes under the guise of Christianity, but it's strictly external. And what God is interested in is a transformed heart, that you and I are being renewed day by day in our inner being. We're being prepared for a life with God. And that's what it's all about. So what happens here in verse 20? Jeremiah's there preaching, and then the priest, Pasher, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, and he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten, put in stocks at the upper gate, of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. In other words, he shamed him, beat him, you know, incarcerated him. He was being persecuted by the priest. He's a priest too, but he didn't like his messaging. And it, it, let me just keep reading and then I'll, I'll make some comments on it. This is what the Lord says, you know. 
The next day when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. He says, I'm gonna change your name here. Uh, he said, for this is what the Lord says, I'm gonna make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon. First time that's mentioned. Usually it was a threat from the north. Now he's naming the kingdom. Who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of the city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all of its valuables, all of the treasures of the kings of Judah. Listen, everything that you've worked for, you're gonna lose. Can I tell us something that we need to hear once in a while? That everything you're living for, you're gonna have to give up one day. So if you're just living strictly for the things you see, you're gonna be deeply disappointed because you're gonna have to give it all up anyways. It's all temporary. And so when you and I make decisions to live strictly for this life, it's a very unwise choice on our part because we need to focus on what's eternal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then God says, I'll take care of the material side for you. But make the, 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 the uh, eternal the focus of your life, not the temporal. And yet so often we invert that, don't we? And isn't that what our culture is doing? They have no concern about what's eternal, and they're totally focused on what they're going to lose, what's temporal. And I see it over and over again. I, I, I watch this played out. As you get older, you start talking about people downsizing. Isn't that interesting? Working all this time, and then they're downsizing. Why do we even try to upsize? Makes no sense to me. As a matter of fact, I was so impressed recently by a young couple in our church that said, Pastor, we've decided to downsize, and they're in their 30s. I said, man, you guys are ahead of the curve. It's pretty smart. They said, you know what we want? We want freedom. And we think that everything we possess ties us to it so that we have to serve it rather than those things serve us. And so we want a simpler lifestyle so we can focus on what's really important. And I went, wow, you guys are way ahead of the curve. Verse six, and you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, and you and all your friends to whom you've prophesied lies. In other words, uh, Tremper Longman says this, priests were guardians of the holy space, and so Pasher was surely within his rights to punish someone whom he thought was a false prophet. However, since Jeremiah's prophecy was not false, the story is actually condemning Pasher who now becomes representative of the temple court. And what we need to understand is that uh, Jeremiah, who seems to be an enemy of the establishment, uh, was actually confronting the sin of his hour, both religiously and politically. The worship of idols were actually occurring at the temple. And a contemporary of Jeremiah is a man by the name of Ezekiel. We have a book by his name. And Ezekiel gives us an insight into what was happening in chapter 8. He said, then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were bowing down to the sun in the east. In other words, these guys in the temple, these priests were actually idolaters. That's what he's telling us. And so what, this is a judgment against you know, the people of God and actually the leaders themselves. Two views of reality clashed and there can be no compromise. Jeremiah's scathing response rather than his punishment is the point of the text. And his response, as Walter Brueggemann says, is in three parts. First, he is dramatically renames the temple administration. 
A changed name witnesses to a changed reality. The temple was, was designed to bring shalom or peace, but it was now gonna bring terror. He says, the administrative head of the temple is renamed terror on every side or surrounded by trembling. The temple represented by Pasher and the city are now marked for terror and not for peace. The temple cannot keep its promises. The system is under judgment, it has failed. It may mouth shalom, but it embodies terror. It is therefore subject to God's terror. So what is being spoken against Pasher is really being spoken against the entire system. This is, it's a systemic failure. The whole thing is corrupt. The population from the top down have turned their backs on God and are trusting in the mere form of godliness. It is basically a sham or a shame. An outward ritual that is denying the very power and presence of God to have his way in their lives, both nationally and individually. I want you to hear the warnings of Peter's in his second epistle. This is what Peter's saying. Because I think we have to learn something. You know, you know like, what, what can we learn from this historically relevant moment? Well, this is what Peter says. We're to guard against false prophets and teachers who introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. Okay, are we, are we queuing in? Okay, what's this teaching? Is it, is it somehow denying that God is in control? Number two, many will follow their depraved conduct and bring the way of truth into disrepute. You know, does that ever happen that we have bad theology that leads people into bad living? Of course we do. Three, is this motivated by greed? And then the people that are motivated by greed are fabricating all kinds of stories to have followers follow them? Does that happen? Peter wrote of this. Go, go to 2 Peter uh, chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'm, just, I'm summarizing it. Look what happens in verse 4. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and made them an example of what will happen to the ungodly, what can we expect? And the answer is what? We can expect judgment. That's what's gonna happen. Now here was the right response. What was Noah's response? In fear, he built an ark. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling people to repent and come to safety. Even though people had opportunity for 100 years, they didn't do it except for his own family. Then we read of Lot, a man, a righteous man, who the Bible says who was distressed daily. His soul was vexed, it says. Isn't that interesting? He lived in a society, he said, uh, he was disturbed. And when he left the city, even his wife had been so captured by the value system of Sodom when the fire and brimstone were coming, when warned not to turn back, she couldn't help herself, but she had to look back. She was looking back to what she was losing rather than seeing it as a deliverance. And then we, we think of, uh, you know, Jesus as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, if, they, if, if you only knew the day in which you were living, this was a moment of visitation. God was visiting them. God himself was visiting his people and they were so blind that only some of them began to understand. Jesus was weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Why was he weeping over that city? Because he could see in the future and he could see ahead to that day of judgment. He could see that city surrounded by Roman armies. He could see the devastation that was about to happen. And Jesus was weeping 
over the city. You know, as I was working on this message, I thought to myself, my goodness, we have been lulled into a state of slumber. No, I've been lulled into a state of slumber. I can't speak for all of you. I can only speak for myself. You know, when we, when we have a sense that we don't, let me go say it this way, when we don't have a full sense of who God is, when we don't see God in all of his grace, love, mercy, and kindness, and also God's justice, righteousness, and holiness, we have a distorted view of God. I would argue that it's easy to develop a distorted view of God today. And one of the reasons I know we have a little bit of a distorted view of God is because when you and I have a full understanding of the nature of God, it motivates us to do something about the condition of other people. So I'm gonna ask the question, how, how concerned am I? Am I vexed in my soul daily? Am I concerned about others hearing this word of salvation and hope of impending judgment? Are we sharing our faith with those around us? Is there any sense of urgency in our hearts towards them? When we lose sight of that justice and the eminency of God's judgment, we lose a sense of urgency in sharing the good news with others. Listen to what Paul says. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Or the King James, since then we know the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. You know, I think we've lost that sense. We need to pray that we'll recover it. I want you to think of what happened when Isaiah was in the temple. He had a vision of God. A full, he says, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the glory of God. First response out of Isaiah was, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner, and so is everybody else. And God immediately came and showed grace to him and touched his lips with a, you know, a coal from the altar, and it cleansed him. That's the gospel. God is here to cleanse us. And then God was speaking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here, my Lord, send me. Isn't that amazing? See, the moment you've had a vision of God and you see the true condition of your soul and the true condition of others, it will motivate you in a way you've never been motivated before. Let's stand this morning. I'm just looking at my notes here. It's going into a different, oh, we do have all those verses. Okay, it's good. With every head bowed this morning, we were praying, Lord, awaken, awaken, awaken us. You know, I, I think all of us in this room can say, oh yeah, we can see the society is really breaking down, Pastor. But what is it doing to you and me? I think right now what's happening is some people are being deceived and are embracing the values of our society. That's a group. On the other side, there's a group of people saying, no, I don't buy any of that stuff and I'm trying to defend it. You know what, we need a third group of people. This is where we need to get to, when our hearts are broken. When we stop just being the critics and pointing things out that are wrong, when we begin to say, God, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. I'm a little bit apathetic and indifferent. And I was sharing this idea with somebody. I said, can you imagine right now if a meteor were streaking to Earth and the scientists knew it and they had a report. World's gonna be 
hit by a meteor and it's, it's going to hit to the size and degree that it could destroy an entire city. And everyone's praying on the planet, hoping it's going to land at the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Arctic or some other ocean, but just not hit a, a place where there's a lot of people. And for some reason, God shows us as a congregation, it's coming, it's going to hit Red Deer. It's going to happen next Saturday. What would we be doing for the next week? We'd be running around trying to tell everybody we cared about, you got to be out of town on that day because you know the report, the meteor's coming, but now I know it's coming here. You and I would have a deep sense of urgency. Do we have any sense that Jesus is coming back again? For us, it's great. For others, it's detrimental. There's no more door of grace open. It's like the ark is now complete. God's shutting the door. Everybody in the ark is safe. Everybody outside is going to perish. Do we care? I believe if we have the spirit of Christ, we'll care. Can't just leave this stuff like that. Got to do something. Lord, would you change our hearts? How many here just say, you know, Pastor, I, I hear what you're saying, and I have to say, like you, there's a bit of indifference and a little bit neglect and apathy. I've allowed this life to create a little, you know, buffer where I'm not, there's no, there's no deep sense of the urgency of what's about to happen in our world. I've become just a little distant from it, a little apathetic. Is that you? How is it shaping your life? Can we ask God to do something in our soul today? Only God can change our hearts. How many say that's true? I can't change you, you can't change me. But God can change us. How many say, Lord, would you change my heart? Would you help me to see life the way you see it right now? Can you help me see people the way you're looking at them? Can you help me to get an, a sense of what's about to happen in our world? And sometimes we're fooling around with the wrong goals. We're just locked into what totally different picture of what God has in mind. Let's ask God to help us. And I'm going to pray for us as a congregation. Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you open my heart? Would you stir something in our spirit, Lord? Will we get a vision of who you are in its totality? Maybe we have that Isaiah encounter where something is occurring within us so that we see ourselves as you see us and we see you as you really are and we begin to see the need in our world like we never have before. And not to walk around condemning ourselves, but Lord, to begin to be used by you in a way we've never been used before. To have a courage we've never had before. To have a passion we've lacked in our life. To stir our souls, Lord, and begin to see people differently. To begin to look at people and recognize the great need in our world is for them to know you, the true and the living God. And Lord, I just thank you for hearing this cry. And I pray this week that you would stir our souls. Just like, you know, a, a, a glass of water and we have a spoon inside of us and you're stirring us by your spirit in our innermost being so that we will not remain indifferent to what's happening in our world. Not that we will come off as the ultimate critics, but we'll come off with compassion and understanding that we'll be concerned about those around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.